time period right away here. Before we do that, I just want to let you know that Kevin and Brian are going to come back tonight and talk about this all over again. So if you didn't get enough of them, come on back at 7 o'clock. Next week, we're going to be hearing from Shannon Phillips, MLA, on the new NDP government. So that's going to be exciting. Be sure to be there. All sessions can be found on sacpaw.ca if you guys are interested. Um, for questions, we're going to line up with the mic over here as usual. Try to keep them brief and to the point. And once you've asked your question, please return to your seat as this is not a debate. So we're going to have Kevin back up here. Oh, hi. Thanks. Hi. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you so much for your talk. Fabulous. I, th I don't think some people really understand the watershed, what a watershed is. So that was, that was just terrific. I want to mention two things and then ask a question. One is we were in Sweden this summer. And in Sweden, basically, when they do um, the cutting down of the giant pine trees for the IKEA furniture, which is value added in Sweden before it's sent away, um, they go in and they take the biggest and oldest trees out and leave the rest of the forest. So the forest is always at various heights and they don't do the roads in and, and do all that um, um, messy messy thing that erodes the, uh, the soil. <clears throat> the other thing is when, uh, when the first people came here to Canada, uh, other than of course our indigenous peoples, but when the first colonizers came, um, they saw the beaver and uh, thought that the beaver was the smartest animal on the planet because it was an engineer. And that's why the beaver is our national hmm. animal, because they thought it was more intelligent than any other animal. It could be an engineer. Anyway, so uh, I hope you can talk with uh, both our provincial and federal governments and get some changes in terms of uh, protecting beavers. And the third thing, I want to say is a question, and that is, with global warming and rain coming, uh, perhaps instead of snow, into the snowpack areas and the watershed areas, when the rain is coming down on the big, big uh, conifers and um, going into that area, according to your stats, does that mean we will have that 60% extra amount of precipitation as rain coming into our bog lands, and do you see increased problems with um, that runoff if it's at a higher rate? Okay, so that, yeah, that's a good question. Um, when you're looking at change that is going to make your water security less secure, that's probably makes it even more urgent to work on getting rid of the problems you've already created. Uh, it's not going to get any easier for us, and that winter precipitation that we're already seeing coming as rain is not helpful because what happens is it, it falls on frozen ground because uh, increasingly you don't even have snowpack in parts of the, of the headwaters. It's, it's just frozen ground, and water that falls on frozen ground runs off over land. It can't soak in. And so really um, you got maybe more water because it's not coming down and getting trapped in the canopy and, and, and lost to the air. But you're getting it in the spring, in the in the winter, and it's gone by spring. It's 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 come down the river and, and drained out. Some of it will manage, will will fall in the, in, in you know, accumulate in the hollows and things like that. But a lot of it's gone. It would be nice to have a few, few more beaver dams if you got winter precipitation that's coming as rain. But you know, it's it's not going to get better. What nature's going to give us? So we better be better about how prepared we are to receive what we get. And that goes back to getting that landscape healthy. 
Uh, Terry Shellington, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation. Uh, my tribute to the photographer as well, but um, I have a big picture question. <coughs> um, it seems to me that as a human race, we never plan ahead about how big cities can be. Cities form because there's work there, and then and then we worry later about how to how to handle the the requirements of the city. And <coughs> I'm curious if you've done any thinking about this. I, did I hear you say that Calgary is projected to double in size? Southern Alberta is projected to double in population. That was one of the premises that the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan was built around. Well, my question to you would be, as a water expert, do you have any thoughts about what size of city Southern Alberta can sustain in terms of water supply? So we're looking at Lethbridge. Uh, we double the size of Lethbridge or double the size of Calgary. Mm -hmm. Is there really water? Uh, to nourish that kind of population. Do you have any thoughts as a water expert about how, how big, what kind of population the, the southern half of this province can sustain water-wise? So well, that's a good question, and I, I need to qualify it first of all. I'm not really a water expert, I'm an ecologist, but I just happen to uh, try and make myself an expert to write this book. Um, I talk to a lot of water experts. And it's interesting, I used to work with the national parks, and I used to get this question about visitation increase because I, I ended my career in Banff, which is... It's like the lightning rod of all national parks. I, I don't think that the size of our cities is really an issue from water point of view because, like for instance, Calgary has grown in my li uh, lifetime to a city that's three times as big as when I was a kid and it's using less water. There's a lot of things you can do with efficiency. I think the biggest issue we have in southern Alberta is how much we allow irrigation to expand. Um, we've got productive irrigated land. Um, we've got a nice irrigation economy. Does it need to keep occupying more land? Because irrigation actually consumes a lot of water, whereas cities actually just sort of cycle water through. We, you know, we, we put it through our treatment systems, we put it through our kidneys, and we put it right back in the river. But um, the, the big consumer of water is actually irrigation. So, and, and, and irrigation also consumes land, and we've used an up an awful lot of our native grasslands, and the rest of what we've got probably would serve us better uh, as wild prairie than as, uh, as, as yet more irrigated fields. So... I don't think there's a limit. I don't think population is the issue when it comes to water. I think it's land use. And I think that we need to make sure that we don't create water-consuming land uses that require more water, unless we absolutely have to, and that we need to improve the parts of the landscape that produce the water. Um, but uh, a big city, there's reasons for cities not to get big. Lots of good reasons. Um, but I don't think that really that water security is a piece of that because w cities really don't consume that much water. My name is Cheryl Bradley, and uh, Kevin, I'm looking forward to delving into your book. I'm looking at the wonderful images. Uh, you've had a big part of your career working in national parks where we don't have logging. And I... Uh, I'm mindful in some of the land use consultation processes I've been involved in that um, one of the justifications given for continuing clear-cut logging is that we need to guard against fire. And so um, I just like your views on um, logging replacing fire and do we is that really a valid argument to continue the kinds of practices, logging practices that we're doing in our, in our foothills? And, and also some perspective on fire and off-road vehicle users and how yeah. there's linkages there. 
Well, fire absolutely does not replace logging. I, I, I was with the Foothills Model Forest for a number of years when I was up in Jasper, and that was a big part of their research program, was trying to demonstrate the degree to which it does. Logging takes away the, the big stems and leaves all the fine material. Fire takes away all the fine material and leaves the big stems. Right off the bat, you got a difference. Fire changes the chemistry of soil by cooking it and by releasing nutrients into it. Logging put some nutrients into it, but it basically they go through and they plow afterwards. They actually really change it in a different way. So fire from a process point of view is completely different from logging. And fire does not create roads. Logging needs to have access and skid trails and things like that. So um, the argument that logging replaces fire is a total fallacy that's foisted upon us by people that don't want us to boot, out, boot them out of any part of the forest. And the idea that it will protect us from fire is another fallacy because what happens when you, when you log off an area is you release all the su suppressed ground vegetation to grow and you've got a lot more grass, a lot more shrubs. That's what we call fine fuels. Fine fuels are what carry fire. Canopy fires are rare. It's only in extreme conditions that, f that forest fires burn the tops of the trees because it has to get into the top and then has to be carried by wind because fire wants to crawl across the ground. You create a lot of fine fuel, you're actually increasing the rate of spread of fire and, and increasing actually the chance of adjacent stands burning. So like Lost Creek fire in, in, uh, you know, that we all saw a couple years ago, uh, it burned through reforested uh, logged off land because that reforested logged off land was very flammable. It just changes the fuel type. So when foresters talk to you about fire, uh, they're, you know, listen carefully. They aren't really concerned about fire. They're concerned about their access to timber. So, uh, and then uh, the other piece, that, as you mentioned, with the off-roading is that, uh, you know, most of the human-caused fires start where people are, and that means along the uh, access routes. And so they start in campsites and along the edges of roads and things like that. And, uh, yeah, if, if you want to reduce the number of unnatural fire starts, maybe we should concentrate our use in a fewer, pla fewer places in the landscape because we start fires wherever our vehicles will take us. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming today, Kevin. Uh, if I can squeeze two questions in, uh, is that allowed, moderator? Uh, one is, uh, what are the rules in the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan regarding off-road? And the other one is, uh, has to do with irrigation, of course. We, uh, we can't rely on beavers uh, uh, storing enough water for irrigation, and irrigation is huge in this part of the world. What are your views on dams and sure. and uh, irrigation, generally speaking? So the piece one, the first one is an easy one to answer. What are the rules related to off-road vehicles in the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan? It has no rules. It's a policy document, and it's a really, I would argue, inadequately written policy document. It's really a plan to do a bunch more plans. And so the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan requires that we have linear access, linear disturbance plans and recreational plans. And so all they did was they spent two or three years planning to produce a bunch more plans. So right now, the bureaucrats are back at work planning, which is what they do well. Um, so what are the rules? Uh, the rules are yet to be written, and we can have a real influence on them. We need to uh, suspend disbelief and continuing, continue to involve ourselves in these endless planning processes until we get a plan that actually has a prescription in it. In terms of irrigation, you know, we have a, a fairly mature... Um, downstream management system in place right now. Uh, you know, that Three Rivers Dam, the Old Man Dam, was uh, probably the last big infrastructure project. There's been a couple off-stream projects since then, but, you know, we're able to move water around to where it's needed right now. Uh, we don't really have a problem with water access. In fact, with the efficiencies in irrigation right now, we're actually producing more surplus water, that, which is good if we put it back in the rivers because the rivers need it. Um, 
So I, I, I would disagree that we can't rely on the beavers to give us more water. We absolutely can. The only way we're going to get more water is to hold water in the headwaters longer, trap more snow and hold it there longer, and beavers are part of that equation. Um, I don't, I, maybe I'm naive here, or maybe I'm just not close enough to the irrigation industry to understand it, but I don't see um, that we have any urgent problems in the future in terms of irrigation water supply, as long as we don't keep expanding irrigation. And I'm not convinced that expanding irrigation is necessary. Uh, um, you know, you can't keep on growing endlessly. Uh, as, as one uh, environmental writer said, that's the ideology of the cancer cell. Um, we probably have a good economy right now. Let's just make sure that it thrives and, and, and continues to be as productive as possible. Let's add value to irrigation, but let's not add it by adding land. Let's look at crop mixes. Let's look at productivity. Let's look at those sorts of things. Um, I think we're in pretty good shape uh, from what, everything I can see. Edward Townitz, uh, thank you for your presentation. And I, I know and I'm aware of it that it's uh, important that we are concerned about our water use. I have used a fair amount, although I was just a small farmer on irrigation. Um, you know, water used by irrigation farmers translates into food. And we could probably all do with one meal less a week to conserve more water. But <laughs> that's not the point. But, you know, sometimes we just blame the farmers for using too much water, but it gets all too back to the individual because everybody uses that water that goes for food. Now, my question is, how much are the cities over, or, or the uh, municipalities over-allocated for what they have their present use? Now, we could probably cut down 20% on our use, but, you know, that would give you some idea of how long we can keep on having more children, not having more refugees. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question is towards... How uh, much are the cities or the municipalities yeah. over-allocated for their water? Lefbridge says uh, Calgary is, uh, every city is over-allocated. So you can't give out no more water because your allocation goes up. Yeah, the, uh, you know what the number is? Yeah, I don't know the number. I do know that uh, uh, the reason that there's no more licenses available to allocate in southern Alberta is because all the water is licensed. That doesn't mean it's all being used. And the biggest unused portions of licenses are the cities. As Calgary's got a, a, a large license, they only use some of that water. And with efficiencies, they're actually able to re use less water. But they keep it in reserve, and therefore it's not distributed elsewhere. I tell you, you get into water discussions in southern Alberta, and it takes you into some real rabbit holes. Uh, my, my focus is not on water policy and the downstream end of things. It's around where we get that water from. And, um, you know, uh, if we want to have a future where we fight over water, because we'll always fight over water, anything that's scarce generates debate and controversy, let's at least have lots of water to fight over. And right now we have 12% less than we used to have coming down those rivers, and there's something wrong that's not just climate-related. Um, and that's really where I'm focused. Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. One of my big concerns is the off-road vehicles. And I had former neighbors beside me who have moved back to the States, and they used to go back to, into the Crow's Nest Pass area, and they were absolutely shocked and appalled by the damage that was being done by all kinds of off-road vehicles. And do you think that we have literally a hope in hell of turning back that use? Um. I think we have a real tiger by the tail, and, and what it is is that we've had uh, management by negligence and incompetence for 30 or 40 years now. Mm -hmm. 
And what that's done is it's created a culture of vandalism that where people feel entitled to do the things you're talking about. They are not entitled to. That what they're doing is absolutely wrong, but they think it's good. And they think those who think they shouldn't do it um, are the ones with the problem. So the road forward uh, is not an easy one. You know, it's easy to, f to deal with things before they become problems than it is once they become a problem. But the road forward is to build some proper off-road vehicle trails in the landscape that the responsible users will use. They want those. And we should want those because proper trails will have drainage bars installed. They won't follow. The, they, they'll, they'll have uh, diversions to put water back into the vegetation. They'll have proper crossings on wet areas. They'll be fun to, uh, to play on but, and, and to travel on, but they won't damage the watershed. So we need that. But we still have that cultural vandalism. And so we, unfortunately, it's going to get ugly out there because there's some real, frankly, jerks <laughs> that think that they have a right to be there. And, um, and they're dangerous people uh, because of how they think. And so we do have a huge enforcement problem and we need to turn the Titanic. But let's do it. That's what we elect governments to do. And that's what we have a responsibility to do as a society. We, we don't want, if we want a future of anarchy, then we can give it to ourselves real easy by not dealing with these things. Um, it's not going to be easy, but it's got to be done. So, yeah, enforcement, proper trail design, and then changing the priority in that landscape from trying to be all things to all people to being the best it can be for our future needs, because well, a big one of which is water security. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. I much appreciated your very clear diagnosis of the problem and proposing a solution as well. And it would seem that, particularly in view of what you just said in response to the earlier question, that the climate for change couldn't be better right now. And I'm wondering whether you've actually approached Alberta Environment with your suggestions for new legislation. And if you're having problems with access, the minister's down here next week. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and and uh, I'm going to give you a two-edged answer to that one. Uh, the first part is absolutely yes. I, 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 this is an amazingly accessible government. This is a strange bunch. I, I, you know, this is not what we're used to seeing out there. Uh, I, I've, I've met with the minister. I've met with uh, my MLA. I've actually been invited to do I have addressed the, uh, the, the NDP caucus during one of their retreats. And what's that all about? You know, you know, usually they're busy guarding the door and keeping you out because they've got other guys already in there with suits, you know. Um, so, so this is a great. <laughs> so, so this is a great time. Times of political transition are times of opportunity because you've got a lot of newbies who are still trying to get their feet on them. You've got a government that's trying to establish a policy footprint that looks different from what you, you're used to. And so, um, Mike, I would fl fling this one back on you. Is you asked me what whether I've met with them. My question would be, how many people here have met with them? Uh, we have a chance right now to influence where the government goes, but they will act on the conversations that they hear and the conversations that are loudest. And, and uh, it's up to us to create those conversations because I tell you, there's a lot of people knocking on their door. I hope, that's, I hope that some people that are concerned about water and biodiversity and our future are amongst them because otherwise we'll solve other people's problems. No, but my question was, have you met with Alberta Environment? Yes, I have. And what's the reaction? Um, I presented that draft... Uh, thing to Minister Phillips about three weeks ago and uh, a little bit of a background discussion on uh, that was sort of framed around uh, flood mitigation. I was really impressed with her. She's a very intelligent woman. She's very uh, politically astute, thank God, because you need to be. Um, 
and she has um, seems to have the right motivations. She was already thinking about the problem. She had a different solution that she told me she was uh, more interested in, involved watershed councils, but um, but she was really engaged. And, and so I think um, I got some good signals from her. I mean, obviously, right now it's around uh, greenhouse gases. That's That's where... Uh, her focus is going to have to be over the next month. But um, I, I think we've got a good minister there. She definitely understands the issues, and she is looking for solutions. And so, yeah, it, it was a, it was encouraging. She didn't say, yeah, I'm going to do it. That was what I was hoping for. But yeah. <laughs> I'm Mary Shillington. Thank you very much for both your presentation and your answers to the questions, because they've been helpful, too. Uh, I was disturbed by that gully that occurred in 2013, and I'm also disturbed <coughs> by the, uh, the loss of the beavers. So what can we do, uh, and what's it gonna cost us, and, and how do we get it done? Well, <laughs> there is a paper on your table that might be part of it. I, I, I do think that you get policy outcomes if you organize your resources around the policies you're trying to accomplish. And we haven't done that, so let's do that. And, and, and I think that's a matter of having the discussions with the government until they finally realize that people aren't going to go away until they reorganize and get the Forest Service out of managing our water uh, and, and put water uh, forest hydrologists in there. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is, you know, um, it doesn't take much to change the Wildlife Act so that beavers are protected. It doesn't change much to institute a quota or to close beaver trapping as a legitimate uh, um, uh, object of trapping in fur management area six, which is our headwaters. It wouldn't take much. Uh, it just takes the, the wildlife guys to do that. But they need to be motivated to do it because they're used to doing what they always do and they think they have all the answers because they talk to all the people that think like them. They need to hear from people that don't. Uh, and in terms of the off-road vehicles, well, you know, um, I noticed that the government has brought back the summer student program. Uh, so many of the people, my colleagues, that are the most active in conservation, at some stage in their life, they were students and they got woods, woods work. They worked in the, in, in the forest, quite often in conservation courses and things like that. I think it would be a really good public investment to hire a bunch of students every summer to go out and patch up some of those quad trails and put them back into vegetation. They'd get a great experience. They'd be able to finance their education. We'd turn a bunch more people into nature that then become the professionals and the, and the, and, and, and the citizens of the future, and we get the job done. You know, we invest public resources and things. We, we, we put a, almost a billion dollars into, into the Old Man Dam. That means we can find money for dumb solutions because although that was a good solution from a water distribu distribution point of view, it didn't do a thing for water supply. Uh, well, unless you're downstream from it, I guess. But, uh, you know, we can find money to spend on what we think is important. So let's spend the th money on the things that are actually important. And that involves things like employing youth, making it possible for kids to finance their education, getting people in the woods and turning them on to these things so they'll write books 30 years down the road, and fixing some of the messes that are out there rather than uh, planning endlessly. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of conversations we could be having with MLAs right now. And I think that this, if there is one thing that's productive right now at a time of uh, transition, those are the conversations that we should be having. You know, three years down the road, talking to an MLA will be much less valuable because they will be fully briefed by their bureaucrats. They'll be fully invested in the things they've already put in motion. They won't want to talk to you if you want them to do something different. Right now is a good time to be talking to them. Uh, my name is Frank Toth. You've taken me back 80 years. I grew up with the, with the First Nations people mostly. We hunted with them. We discussed it. We talked with the old, 
old 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 chiefs, and uh, they naturally are were 100% protective of their environment. They lived on it. That was their food. That was their guide. That was their homes. Uh, you partly just answered my question, though. Uh, whose jurisdiction would it be to protect the most important animal in our lifetime, the beaver? Is that provincial or federally? Federal. <clears throat> it's uh, the jurisdiction over wildlife ever since 1930 has been with the provinces. So wildlife are considered resources, and in the 1930s, the jurisdiction of resources came to the provincial government. So it's a provincial thing. Um, the only difference would be if it was an endangered species, which beavers certainly aren't. Um, so any changes in how we manage beavers will be instituted by the province of Alberta, and that's the, the level we should be talking to. I think we're halfway there then. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Uh, my name is Joseph Natuk. Uh, interesting discussion. But I really uh, I want some uh, wisdom from you as far as what you think regarding what's going to happen in the future. We have a new regime. You have, do you have any kind of a feeling where we're going regarding these kinds of issues? Uh, would you be willing to uh, set the tone as to where they should be going, in your opinion? And uh, you have a whole bunch of people here who will be listening so we can lobby our MLAs. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's one of those questions like, um, what should I invest in, you know? <laughs> you know exactly. Like, anybody can be an expert if they've got a microphone. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I've covered some, a lot of that, of course, in terms of uh, what I think would be the valuable things for us to be doing. And that's, that's, that's my thoughts. Um, I think the most important thing is to have the right priorities and then to be working on them. And, and so I, I think we probably can agree on the priorities more than what the tactics are. There might be other ways to get to nirvana. But uh, in terms of where things are going, I don't know. It's really hard to say. I think uh, a lot of Albertans scared themselves when they woke up on election mo morning and realized that we had an NDP government, and so it might be a flash in the pan. On the other hand, if they can establish credibility with a broad sector of Alberta society during the four years they've got, they might get another term, and it might be that um, we have um, a, a continuing um, uh, government in this province that uh, looks different from the ones that we see in the rearview mirror. And whether that's good or bad really depends on what they get done in those four years. So this is a time of transition that is a time of opportunity. Um, we have a people-accessible government right now, uh, a vulnerable one, uh, um, attentive one. Um, the future will be what we make it. Uh, and and uh, and 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 it, it won't be what we don't make it. So, I think we just need to, need to we, we we need to get active as citizens. I mean, we've been given an opportunity. Let's not squander it. I've been given permission to ask one more question. This is Bev. <clears throat> you mentioned we have twelve and a half percent less water in the province right now. I'm wondering what impact do you feel, or do you know from your background, um, fracking? and the loss of water into the fracking wells is having on uh, that 12.5%? That um, the 12.5% number is based on the, the, um, the calculations that the people that measure water at different points of the province make when they sort of look at the flow levels at different creek crossings and gauges and they sort of extract from the numbers what we've pulled out for irrigation or for towns and things like that and they say, okay, you, once you crunch all these numbers, this is how much natural water we can account for. 
So we got 12% water coming out of the headwaters, 12% less water coming out of the headwaters, and it's independent of all the things that we do. It doesn't, that isn't influenced by, you know, I mean, we got way less water in the summer because we pull so much out of it for watering fields and things like that. That doesn't take that into account. It doesn't take into account fracking either. Uh, you know, fracking is another water use. It's a consumptive water use. It is a growing water use, and and, and there's a bunch of other issues around fracking. I mean, you're, 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 the effects it has on our underground aquifers is kind of spooky because you, what you're basically doing is creating underground rubble piles. You know, is that a good idea? I don't know. Doesn't seem like one to me. Um, but uh, but it's a separate issue, really. It, it's 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 it doesn't affect the natural water supply. The natural water supply is really a product of climate and land use. Um, and uh, and then it affects the consumptive consumptive piece, and we do need to be paying attention to that one too. Uh, we need to consume water for the right purposes, for the most productive purposes, and in the most frugal way possible. We should not be looking for n new ways to squander water into places where it does harm. And I think maybe that's where you're going with fracking. Thanks again.